Hey, everyone. I'm here today with the great Thomas 777. He's the author of the science fiction novel Steel Storm and the host of the Mind Phaser podcast. What's going on, man? Hello, Jose. Thank you. That's quite an introduction. I appreciate the compliment and I appreciate the opportunity to be here on your podcast. I always feel a certain honor when people whose content I respect invite me to appear on their pods. So, yeah, thank you very much, man. Yeah, no problem. So, before we dig into some revisionist topics, could you tell the audience about yourself? Certainly. I mean, I've been active online. I assume that's how most people kind of have come to my content is online. I mean, I, that goes without saying. I've been active in producing online content going on about 25 years now. I mean, I started back in the Usenet days when it was just me and six or eight other guys you know, discussing these topics. And if you had an audience of a dozen or so, that was considered to be pretty good. I mean, the metric was kind of low, but it's a matter of perspective. You know, I remember I was reading the other day, owing to something I was writing, H. Keith Thompson, who was an intimate of Francis Yaki. He was writing in the early 80s. He was telling an interviewer that if a right-wing circular kind of publication or, you know, zine was put out that had a subscription list of 100 subscribers, that'd be considered like a great success. You know, I mean, it's the fact that today you can reach tens of thousands of people. And I mean, that even people who aren't particularly well-known are clocking those kinds of numbers. I mean, that, that's just incredible, at least to me. I realize it probably makes me sound like an old guy. But in any event, I've long been active online discussing revisionist topics and issues of concern and interest to the right generally. I mean, I've always been more of a kind of historical writer, although lately I've been taking on current events topics more and more because of the international situation, I, I think, warrants that. But as you indicated, I also am a science fiction author. I published through Imperium Press. I've got a science fiction series called Steel Storm. It's alternative history and I guess kind of hard political theory with a science fiction motif and narrative as a framing device. And, you know, that's pretty much my bio. I'm a, you know, an independent scholar, revisionist, historian and author, online content creator. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I think that's kind of a pretentious term, but that's the kind of lingua franca today. So yeah, that is my deal in a nutshell. Yeah, you're definitely heavily focused on historical revisionism. Why do you think that is such an important topic to delve into? Well, if you're talking about politics specifically, but also cultural topics, but particularly the political sphere of human endeavor, just in conceptual terms, that's framed by historical events and you know certain values assigned to historical events and a discrete way in which these things are described and interpreted. Okay. I mean, it sounds cliche, but that's why authors like Orwell, who were writing, you know, regardless of their kind of political orientation, people were writing in his epoch. I mean, he stands out among that coterie just because he he was kind of a great man of letters. But the reason why he was always making the point about whoever controls the narrative of the past can dominate the conceptual horizon of the present and thus discern the kind of trajectory of the future in not just policy terms, but conceptual terms. I mean, that's a very real thing. And uh, that's the only means by which people can orient themselves, not just in their own lives, but in terms of how they assign value to things or how they interpret events in terms of their concrete significance as historical phenomenon, but also the kinds of values they assign to them. There's an intrinsic morality that emerges to historical narrative. So whoever controls that narrative, they've got an ability to kind of, you know, as I just said, you know, shape the conceptual horizon of a great majority of people. And by the mid-20th century, I mean, the interwar years is when this began in earnest, you know, like Weimar era, but it kind of reached its 20th century zenith in the immediate aftermath. 
of the Second World War, the uh, visual media, which is inherently immersive to the viewer, I mean, that ability to kind of truly homogenize the kind of conceptual experience of historical events through visual media, that was a profound innovation and incredibly powerful. And so this took on a more immediate significance in terms of power political affairs, both how people are managed within states and within sovereign polities, as well as how warfare is conducted, as well as how public opinion is manipulated in as regards not just the internal situation of states and the distribution of power and what's viewed as legitimate exercise of power, but also how states proceed in power political terms against one another with hostility, you know. Obviously, the most intense iteration of that is warfare and the management of information and conceptual narratives to generate a mandate for warfare. But it also touches and concerns all kinds of power activity of a violent and hostile nature, like short of open warfare, but nonetheless on that proverbial spectrum. So that's why I started deep diving into revisionism. You know, I came of age right as the Cold War was ending. And, you know, these are very strange times, really kind of chaotic, both in social terms and political terms. And that's also like the consumer internet had not yet become a thing. Cell phones had not yet become a thing, although this stuff was beginning to emerge. You know, it became clear that there was various power political factions then in this country that were jockeying to either assert or solidify control over political narratives as opportunities emerge in order to really consolidate power over such things. You know, like I said, owing to the fact that globalism was truly emergent, owing to the capitulation of the Warsaw Pact. And the kind of creation of a, a truly global conceptual space owing to the emergence of the 24-hour news cycle in 1990, 1991, thereabouts, and the nascent emergence of consumer internet, you know, things of this nature. So this is very much on my mind. But also, as a young adolescent, I always discerned that something was off, basically, about the narrative of the Second World War. I mean, it just didn't make a lot of sense. And intuitively, it was clearly, speaking proverbially, a stage-managed narrative, just because, I mean, regardless of one's political sympathies, just approaching it in purely value-neutral terms, there's a ham-fisted moralism that's insinuated into it, particularly in those days, before one was forced to kind of justify their position in the face of competing perspectives, you know, like one is forced to in the internet era. So, I mean, you'd crack a history book that was considered to be an authoritative source, like something by Shirer, you know, the rise and fall of the Third Reich for a time, for example, was considered a seminal text. But it's really, it's just like a 700-page hysterical polemic, this kind of simple-minded good and evil narrative that's full of confabulations and all kinds of shrill accusations against the German people and things that just again, too, I mean, even if one doesn't particularly sympathize with the Third Reich or the Axis cause of history, these things just were not credible. Like rational people don't accept the truth of these kinds of claims, because that's just not the way power politics resolves and develops. It's just not credible. So that's kind of what began my journey, as it were. Uh, I mean, I, I guess that sounds, you know, I'm aware of the fact it's kind of a silly characterization, but uh, that's the origins of my interest in these topics and in this whole endeavor. Obviously, there's an abjectly political component to it. And owing to my own political sympathies, it was particularly imperative for me to kind of take an interest in these things. But just in purely objective terms, as somebody who took an interest in deep history, it was obvious that what was being promoted as absolute, unimpeachable historical truth was, in fact, nonsense. So that's I realized that was a bit long winded. Forgive me for that. But it's something of a dense topic. Oh, no, no, no. It's actually perfect because it segues into another question I actually had in mind 
what would you say is the biggest myth being perpetuated in modern American history? I mean, I think in the 20th century, which is admittedly my own primary area of interest in research, it's the idea that what happened in the Second World War just kind of was emergent in some sort of vacuum. The European perspective is just as at odds with reality, but it's somewhat more nuanced. But the American narrative basically owes to what was presented at Nuremberg. And I mean, part of that is structural, because if you're going to present a legal case, you've got to do so within certain parameters and you've got to meet certain criteria, you know, owing to specific intent, owing to the culpability of the actors who are identified as the primary participants in, in the enterprise, owing to the nature of what's accepted as evidence, like things like this. But at the same time, too, I mean, it was twofold, okay, like something that quite literally criminalizing the conduct of the government of a sovereign state at war. I mean, there's always political capital to be mined from that. But also in the case of the Second World War, it also created a kind of convenient paradigm in order to present the conduct of the vanquished in the blackest terms imaginable. So it's kind of a chicken or the egg thing as to whether this overly legalistic reasoning and thus, you know, kind of moralistic paradigm of the Second World War whether that was derived from the Nuremberg proceedings itself or whether the vanquished were availed these kinds of proceedings, you know, owing to the fact that it converged with the kind of raison d'etre that was alleged by Washington and London and to a lesser degree Moscow in perpetuating the war. But the greatest lie of the 20th century, in my opinion, is this idea that Adolf Hitler was this kind of just satanic figure, you know, he's presented as this kind of figure of distilled evil in a, in a kind of secular religion of the 20th century. And for no particular reason, he and these other evil men just conspired mass murder against a discreet ethno-sectarian minority group. Again, for no apparent reason, they had designs on world domination, like the emperor and Star Wars would or something. And all the nations of the world just had to stop this sublime evil from imposing a millennia of horror and slavery and tyranny, you know, all the several nations and peoples of the planet. But again, for no particular reason other than that they're bad guys or something on this order. I mean, that's that's kind of what stands out the most in terms of the greatest kind of fiction in American history of the modern era. That to me would be the idea that the war between the states was fought because, you know, the South were, quote unquote, racist and people like Mr. Lincoln and his coalition just for some reason hated racism. So they decided to start a war that killed half a million people because of racism I mean, that, that's in some ways even more moronic than the Nuremberg narrative, but those are the two that really jump out in my mind. Actually, those two topics are interlinked because of the fact that you have all these court historians that try to draw a direct lineage between the Confederacy and German National Socialism, which is absolutely insane, but that's what constitutes so-called sound historical analyses these days. But yeah clown world. Definitely. So one thing I've gathered, though, from your work, you do hammer home one theme about modern American history, how the New Deal was like a revolutionary period in American history. And what ways would you say that the New Deal constitutes like a revolution? The first thing to understand, I refer people a lot to Murray Rothbard. I was talking to our mutual friend, Pete Canones, who's a great guy and a great historical thinker in his own right. He and I were discussing the other day that Murray Rothbard is kind of unfairly pigeonholed into the libertarian camp, which I don't think is particularly accurate nor fair. But I mean, regardless of his writings on policy and things, he wrote a history of the Great Depression, which I consider essential reading. And 
even if you're not an economist or something or a person who's particularly comfortable with those topics, it's very accessible. But what happened in the epoch, there was, in fact, a structural failure of the global financial system resulting in a deflationary spiral and the inability of the then extant banking structure to pick up the slack and mitigate what amounted to a cash drought. Okay, I realize the topic of this program isn't the history of the Great Depression and the kind of nuances therein, but that there was, in fact, a structural failure globally. And I can't drive that point home enough. That's why when people raise things like James Burnham, the kind of seminal paleoconservative thinker, you know, people both in punitive terms, also sometimes out of just pure curiosity, they'll be like, you know, hey, when Burnham was in college, you know, he was praising Marxism and stuff. Well, what people have to understand is that in the wake of the structural failure that was the Great Depression, everybody viewed the free market as having failed. Everybody thought this way, whether you were like left, right, center, you know, whether you were a fascist, whether you were a communist, whether you were, you know, just a kind of middle of the road American conservative type, you know, whether you were a liberal reformer, like everybody thought this way. It was just accepted as fact. So everybody was something of a socialist of some sort or another, because the idea was that like, well, modern economics, the number of inputs that got to be managed are so myriad and so many and the complexity of managing a truly national economy that spans continents in the case of America and in the case of Europe, you know, it was practically moving in that direction. Obviously, in the minds of people of 1930, a lot of state intervention and planning is required, you know, and now that we have technologies availing us to a true science of politics and economics, we can manage these things, you know. And I mean, that's grossly misguided for all kinds of reasons, but people didn't all think this way because they loved Karl Marx or they loved Keynes or something. It's just this was in the epoch with what they had to draw upon in terms of precedent. This made sense. Okay, so there was going to be some kind of revolutionary restructuring of American government anyway. So that kind of was the opportunity for the New Dealers. Now, forgive the tangent, but kind of the right wing counterpart to the New Dealers would have been Huey Long. Okay, and like the Share Wealth Movement. And that's a really interesting topic. And that at some point, I think we should get into that on another podcast, like a dedicated pod. But my point is the paradigm that existed in 1933 upon Roosevelt's ascendancy to office, it was kind of a perfect moment for the imposition of a top-down radical restructuring across the board in the country. And the New Dealers, they were animated by a kind of anti-fascist ideology. I've made the point before, and Paul Gottfried actually wrote a book literally called Anti-Fascism, Anti-fascism is an ideology unto itself. It's not merely the opposition to something. It has its own strictures, its own kind of positive commitments. So the way to understand the New Deal was amidst this kind of global failure of political and economic structures, the New Deal was this anti-fascist regime that was able to insinuate itself into a position of absolute sovereign control over American political processes and thereby implement a kind of total revolutionary paradigm, you know, socially, politically, economically. One component of this was the military draft, obviously, because Roosevelt's notion, as well as a lot of the sociologically inclined partisans within his inner circle, their idea was, well, at some point, they were hell-bent on finding a way to wage war on Germany and force a kind of apocalyptic military confrontation with fascism, you know, to annihilate what they identified as their existential enemy, but also what the Soviets called the nationalities problem, you know, this kind of inconvenient tendency people have to identify with discrete cultures and to identify the basis of authority as organic sources and cultural values and things in lieu of, you know, government and bureaucracy and ideological structures. 
it became a tremendous priority of the New Deal regime, just like it was of the Moscow regime, you know, to break people of these cultural habits and conceptual orientations. Forcing men into the army and breaking down their socialization is a great way to do that, as is forcing kids into public school and stripping them of their native language and literally as well as, you know, their kind of cultural lingua franca and forcing them to adopt this kind of beige Americanism that doesn't really mean anything and it's kind of uprooted from history. It's a way of creating people who are malleable, okay? And the progressive enterprise, and whether we're talking about, you know, liberal progressives, whether we're talking about Marxists who view history as this kind of developmental process, wherever they fall on the spectrum, they view man's stubborn resistance to abandoning his own culture in favor of recognizing bureaucratic, ideologically situated authority. They view this as a problem because they view man as being around to serve government. And that government is some end in itself, which is totally perverse, but that's kind of the characteristic perversion of the left, okay, in a lot of ways. So the New Deal sought about to not just force this kind of collision of this military confrontation with the Third Reich and its fascist allies and others, but also to socially restructure America to create a kind of deracinated, rootless population that exists outside of history. And as I said, is malleable in terms of being molded and shaped to satisfy ideological goals. Now, of course, like the exemption to that, you know, the people who stand outside of that paradigm and the only cultural actor or, you know, ethnic community who are specifically exempt from that paradigm are Jews because they occupy a peculiar role in the ideological paradigm I just described, as well as their world of cultural and social existence really being kind of the driving engine behind the ideology we're describing here. So, I mean, that's another issue, but that's what I mean when I say that the New Deal is a revolutionary enterprise. Forced integration really began in earnest under the New Deal. I mean, it was under different auspices than post-Brown v. Board in 1954, and it was rationalized under the auspices of the national security exigencies and economic necessity and quote-unquote urban blight and these things. I mean, these are the rationalizations for tearing down white ethnic Catholic parish communities and as well as, you know, forcing there to four like rural dwelling black folk into these kind of failing urban centers to um, meet the demands of war production as laborers and things. But that's another thing a lot of people, especially these kind of dull culture conservatives in the mainstream, you know, like National Review types. I mean, those guys probably don't even write about like the civil rights movement anymore. But back when they did, you know, they'd act like things uh, like the 1964 Civil Rights Act just kind of like spontaneously came out of nowhere or that, you know, Berkeley college professors imposed it on us or something like no. All this sort of social engineering has its roots in the New Deal in 1933. And it was well underway a generation before what the system, you know, identifies as the, quote, civil rights era. I realize this, like, threw a lot at you. I don't want to suck all the oxygen out of the room. So, yeah. It's all fascinating stuff. And we're definitely going to touch upon some of the civil rights era because that's one era of U.S. history that cannot be ignored that I believe that many people on the mainstream acceptable right tend to overlook. Now, I do want to go back to a point you mentioned about the Nuremberg trials, because I have heard you say before in other interviews that, in effect, the Nuremberg trials led to a real right-wing movement in the collective West to become just de facto criminalized. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is, you know, like I said, the way the Third Reich was characterized at Nuremberg I stipulated that part of this was owing to the kind of structural demands of making a criminal case or the appearance of it 
I don't accept that the Nuremberg Tribunal abided due process or was convened in good faith. But um, part of the way the right government was portrayed was owing to those structural evidentiary needs or the appearance therein. But, you know, part of it was because from inception of the New Deal regime and ultimately the war effort against the Axis powers, the claim was that the Third Reich was not, in fact, a legitimate government. It was this kind of homicidal conspiracy of criminal actors who convened for the purpose of perpetuating mass homicide outside of the acceptable parameters of warfare and outside of any conventional moral consensus. There's all kinds of things wrong with that. I'm working on a long form that kind of unpacks that. And if I was to kind of break down all the things wrong with it, we'd be here all night. Plus, it's somewhat outside the scope of what you just asked. But that has certain implications that aren't just locally isolated in terms of the precedent established by the Nuremberg proceeding itself. Basically, what you're saying is any kind of violent resistance to the revolutionary order that was imposed upon the planet from the superpower poles of Moscow and Washington, like any resistance to that from the right is intrinsically criminal. Now, if you follow my reasoning, it's this. If the Soviet Union, which before our shot was fired in World War II, had exterminated somewhere in the ballpark of 10 million people, is totally legitimate, and the United States, which waged a nuclear war against a vanquished and prostrate Japan, if that was totally legitimate, yet what the Third Reich did, and to a lesser degree what Italy and Japan and the ways they conducted themselves within the course of the same conflict, if the measures that they undertook were criminal acts, what you're doing is you're rendering an ideological value judgment on a discrete political perspective. You know, you're not really talking about instrumentalities of violence. You're not really talking about the minutiae of treaty precedent, about the laws and customs of war. So after that precedent was handed down, after it had kind of become formally enshrined as a key aspect of international law that the Third Reich was what it was purported to be by the tribunal, there's something inherently suspect about taking on a right-wing position. And we saw this play out in the United States immediately after the war. What had been the American right was Robert Taft, was Charles Lindbergh, was America First, you know, it was a kind of Hamiltonian nationalist enterprise that was aware of itself very consciously as a white and Protestant culture here in America. And, and the American right was the standard bearer of that, you know, which makes sense. What else would it be? After the war, America first was considered no longer morally acceptable. So Eisenhower was kind of a placeholder because he was a national hero. He was a military man. He was a general of the armies for all practical purposes. Like I realized that he, he didn't formally hold that rank, but it's by act of Congress that was what he was in practice. But I mean, who succeeded Eisenhower as the Republican nominee? It was Goldwater, who was this kind of bizarre gadfly libertarian who I mean, his politics were a complete non-starter, but that was the whole point, you know, because some America first nationalist type of the right, that was unthinkable after Nuremberg, because the entire raison d'etre, not just to the tribunal, but of the conflict was the New Dealer progressive radicals of America in unconditional alliance with the international communist movement and with Zionism waged a genocidal war against Europe under the auspices that the German Reich was the enemy of all humanity. In, in conceptual terms, there's no way that somebody in America could represent the political right after that and not be viewed in the most punitive terms, if not considered out and out to be engaged in outright criminality or subversion of the regime under which they are availed. That's what I mean. And that bears out. That's why even figures who aren't particularly right wing, but whose constituencies ossify around them 
as a self-consciously right-wing element. You know, whether we're talking about Mr. Nixon or Mr. Trump, that's why the deep state freaks out and removes them from office. You know, it doesn't matter that neither Nixon or Trump were at all fascist or were even particularly right-wing. The potentiality of a self-aware right-wing political culture around them was enough to throw the regime into a total assault mode against it. You know, when any political figure who represents such a thing to a substantial constituency will be availed of the same treatment, he'll be removed from office, you know. But that's kind of outside the scope. That's what I meant, though. Or that's what I mean. No, great stuff all around. And it's pretty important to recognize how this stuff did not just happen like in a vacuum, the way the typical liberal historical narrative tries to recount the events post-World War II. Let's talk about the 1960s, because that's one era of history that I have a particular focus in. How would you compare that epoch, which is like an era where you saw the passage of the Civil Rights Act, the Great Society, the Immigration Act of 1965, etc., to the New Deal? Would you say it's as revolutionary as the New Deal, or is it just a logical continuation of the revolution that the New Deal set in motion? What I think it was, it was a continuation of the revolutionary enterprise that was implemented in 1933, but there was an added factor. The Cold War was being waged and was being waged in earnest. What the Cold War was, was there was supposed to be a concord between Washington and Moscow, with Moscow as the junior partner. That was kind of the Roosevelt notion. This was shot to pieces in 1949, owing in part to the personalities of Truman and Stalin, respectively, owing in part to some structural features and and other things. And I don't think it would have been sustainable anyway. But when that concord fell apart, Washington and Moscow shifted to an enemy footing. What the great prize was of the Cold War was, I mean, everybody knew that globalism was going to be implemented at some point, but it's, you know, which block is going to capitulate or be annihilated you know, in which system is going to become the global system. Now, the 1960s were critical because the third world had to be won over in order to win the Cold War, quite literally. And the third world being that it was overwhelmingly non-white and underdeveloped. Like, interestingly, the terms first world, second world, and third world, they're geostrategic terms. They don't actually refer to development. There were third world countries that were as developed as the second world was. So, I mean, that's something of a tangent, but it's it's interesting. The first world was the United States and allies. The second world was the Warsaw Pact. The third world was everybody else. I don't know if younger people know that, but in any event, owing to the fact that, you know, there was as much a political dimension to the Cold War as a military one, that's a fascinating topic. Whether that owes to kind of the intrinsic features of communism or if it's something that just was inevitable in the 20th century, owing to the fact that the political came to touch and concern virtually all aspects of human life, you can argue that either way. I've got my own ideas on that that I don't want to deep dive into right now because it's kind of too outside the scope. But in any event, it became imperative for the United States to win the political game by presenting a more attractive package than the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union's big coup in the political battle space, if you'll allow the metaphor, was when the Soviets were carving out client states in Africa and Latin America and Southeast Asia, they'd say, like, look at America as this reactionary racist state, you know, it oppresses blacks, it stole all this land from the indigenous element in the Southwest and in Mexico, and they, they've got a history of chattel slavery that for centuries had an overtly racial dimension to it. So the United States had a real problem. 
you know, by having to compete in the court of world opinion, the true court of world opinion emerged in the late 50s, early 60s, and kind of had to sell itself ethically to the third world. And so that's one of the reasons why the, quote, civil rights era unfolded in earnest at the time that it did. There was as much a critical Cold War aspect to it as there was the fact that, to your point, you know, it was just the continuation of the New Deal enterprise writ large, the continuing kind of social engineering of, of its architects in accordance with the grand design that they had for the country. That's the short answer. I see. So this leads to another point, because you actually go at length to talk about the presidency of Richard Nixon, a vilified figure by court historians. And I tend to believe that whatever flaws he had, he is in no way even in the top 15 worst presidents in American history, but most core historians would have you believe that he's one of the worst ever. Now, what did the election of Nixon represent and how would you describe his presidency on the whole? Well, I'm going to answer in reverse if that's okay. I think Nixon and Eisenhower are the only two post-1933 presidents I esteem, frankly. I've got mixed feelings about Reagan and Bush 41, not because I like their policies or think they were good men, but in power political terms and in terms of their ability to discern the strategic landscape, I think that they deserve honorable mention. But I think Nixon in a lot of ways was a great president. And I think for better or worse, Nixon really was instrumental in winning the Cold War. I don't want to get too esoteric and discuss what the implications of that are and whether that was in fact a good thing in absolute metahistorical terms. But the fact is, I mean, it does represent a monumental contribution to history, for better or worse. Nixon is hated and burned in effigy for similar reasons to Donald Trump. I mean, Nixon and Trump aren't similar men, and Nixon's a far more impressive individual in all kinds of ways. But the Nixon constituency was uh, what the civil rights era did was it alienated, it, cr- it created a truly like white voting bloc because Southern white prods and white Northeastern Catholics, like ethnic guys, they never voted on the same ticket before. But the kind of overreach of the civil rights movement and the nakedly anti-white, anti-Christian tenor to discourse and the kind of radicalization of American political culture, like overtly so. I mean, it had been radical since 1933, but in superficial terms, it was still palatable to none too bright average voters. But Nixon essentially was able to appropriate the George Wallace coalition, which, again, was, you know, northern urban Catholics and southern white prods in a common political block. And that really, really frightened the deep state. So they went into a full court press against Nixon that really has endured to this day. I mean, they're still burning the man in effigy and he's been dead for 30 years, which is incredible. But uh, that's the significance of Nixon. In power political terms, he was able to decouple Beijing from Moscow. And that's really what was the nail in the coffin of the communists in the Cold War, more than any other singular proximate cause. I mean, obviously, that was not the sole proximate cause. But if the communists were going to win, Beijing and Moscow had to sustain some kind of concord, at least in political and military terms, if not in terms of complex interdependence. Part of this was the Chinese short-sightedness. And frankly, the chi political caste has always been greedy and malleable if you let them whiff a little bit of money. But a lot of this was in Nixon's aptitude for Machiavellian intrigues on the world stage. So Nixon's a, a monumental figure of the 20th century, frankly. Agreed. I do believe that there needs to be much more sober assessments of Nixon and that era of American politics altogether, because 
the prevailing narratives you tend to read about or hear about like on the bobblehead media, they are, are pretty much cartoonish in my view. And it doesn't do justice for us that want to actually understand history to have simplified accounts of these monumental epochs of history. Yeah, let's fast forward a bit though. You're a big fan of the international relations scholar, John Mearsheimer. He is the de facto, if not like the official dean of the realist school of thought in modern international relations. And I view his insights as incredibly germane in the present with the war between Russia and Ukraine still raging on. Do you believe that this current conflict vindicates many of the admonitions Mearsheimer has made over the past few decades about U.S. foreign policy towards Russia in the post-Soviet era? Yeah, I do, basically. And I like Mearsheimer's stuff, and I've always had a lot of respect for him. I think his understanding of things is too bound to structural paradigms. He doesn't have a deep enough understanding of anthropological causes of conflict. And I think he's also too grounded to the Westphalian model and the state system and viewing the national state as this kind of perennial thing that I think that's misguided. And I I object to his use of the term democracy because democracy is a meaningless term. It literally means nothing. It's important for real scholars not to legitimize the kind of gobbledygook nonsense language of the regime by invoking it. But overall, yeah, he's absolutely correct on the root causes of the Ukraine war. Douglas McGregor is another guy who I hold in a lot of esteem, and he makes a lot of the same points. And this conflict was inevitable. And I mean, it's been clear since Bush 41 and Baker, their kind of foreign policy team, that was the last time you had a real foreign policy establishment in Washington. I mean, now it's bizarre, delusional people and conceptual illiterates and like crazy Zionists who are only the nature of political Judaism and Zionism. They've got this atavistic tribal hatred to literally everybody on this planet, and they got a particular hatred of Russia. And I mean, that's all you're seeing now. I mean, it's typical Zionists just wanting to harm Russia for the sake of harming Russia. And, you know, these kind of abject fools and illiterates in the State Department who have kind of an infantile view of the planet and bandy terms around like democracy in the way that, you know, some East German apparatchik in 1988 would be banding about imperialism and things like this. These people literally have no clue about the actual features of the world they live in. So yeah, I think Mearsheimer is worthwhile with certain qualifications that I I just indicated. But if people want a better understanding of the world situation, yeah, they definitely should look up his stuff. And some of his scholarship too, Conventional Deterrence, that's a really great book. And it's heavy stuff. And he understands the military side. Mearsheimer understands the military side of things better than a guy like me. I mean, he was a military vet. It's just more something within his wheelhouse. So yeah, there's that too. He's a great guy. My objections to him, or not to him, but my criticisms are by no means put shade on his overall contribution to things. Do you prefer McGregor or Mearsheimer? Which one do you think aligns more with your views? Definitely McGregor. He's less politically correct than Mearsheimer, this part of it. But also, I mean, McGregor's just got a more, he understands the concrete particulars of what animates the deep state in America. And he's very, very aware of the Zionist nature of it. I mean, if one reads within the lines of what McGregor says and writes, and but it's just his background, uh, you know, McGregor, uh, he lived in Ger- he got a scholarship to study in Germany as a kid. And he, from the time he was like 16 to 18, he lived with this German host family. The father was a Wehrmacht veteran. And I mean, you can just tell that he knows the score and he understands he's got no illusions about 
the political character and the nature of the regime. So, yeah, I think uh, I think Mirosham has some blind spots in that regard, like willful or not. I, I can't say I'm not inside his mind. But yeah. Yeah, I've gotten the impression that Mearsheimer, because of the fact he's still featured in numerous mainstream publications, he does have to kind of toe somewhat of an establishment line on things. Whereas McGregor, you really only see him featured in kind of dissident publications or like the most mainstream platform you'll see him on is Tucker Carlson tonight. And he gets always lambasted for being a so-called Russian agent and the usual low IQ accusations that you see peddled by the bobblehead media, but that's to be expected because when you try to talk about reality these days, you're just going to get burnt in effigy, as you've said before. Yeah, indeed. I actually think this is a good place to stop, but before we depart, feel free to plug your content. Okay, yeah, yeah. And again, I, I really, really appreciate it, man, and the opportunity to broach these topics. And let's do it again, man, uh, whenever you're able. But you can find me at realthomas777.substack.com. That's where I drop my long form stuff. That's where you can find the podcast. It's only $5 a month. It'll never be more than that. Everybody can afford that unless you're a freaking hobo. So I behoove you to sign up and subscribe. I mean, but uh, you about half the content on there also is totally free. So if you are a hobo, you can still read about half of what goes up there. I am on Gab at real underscore Thomas 777. Pretty much anything, anytime I do an appearance like this, any YouTube discussion I feature in, I, I put it up there. You know, anytime I drop new content for people who don't subscribe to my Substack, I put it up there. Those are my main platforms right now. Substack will always be, I'll, I'll always be on Substack. Whether I'll develop a broader social media presence again moving forward, I don't know. I don't want to get into all the reasons why, but it's, I think we're at something of a crossroads with respect to that. But yeah, the main place to find me is on Substack. And I've got the next Steelstorm novel is dropping this summer through Imperium Press. I behoove you to check out Imperium. They've got a bunch of great titles. I'm not just plugging them because they're my print publisher. They're really doing God's work, and they got a great bunch of writers who publish through them. So check that out if uh, you're interested. Again, Thomas, thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure hearing you drop a lot of wisdom. And also to my listeners, thank you again for your attention. And with that, El Nino has spoken. <laughs>